Good evening, EMU colleagues and students, friends, and supporters of Eastern Mennonite University. I am Susan, president of EMU, and we are so glad that you are here to mark our sixth annual Academic and Creative Excellence Festival. And thank goodness we have had a beautiful week of April spring weather to enjoy our time together. As many of you know, our provost, Dr. Fred Niss, is retiring at the end of this year. And one of many, many fine academic initiatives he has instituted in his 14 years at EMU is this very event, the ACE Festival. Please help me in thanking Fred for his vision of the ACE Festival in recognizing academic accomplishment. You'll hear from Fred in a little bit who has some history of the ACE Festival as well. The Academic and Creative Excellence Festival is also known as ACE, and I love that acronym because we have many ACE scholars at EMU in both the student body and faculty ranks. This two-day festival will showcase over 150 scholarly and creative works by our students and faculty, and 22 of our faculty are authors this year, and they will be showcasing their publications as well. That's an impressive number for a small university. Since its inception, the ACE Festival is designed to accomplish several goals. First, to recognize excellence in research at EMU. Second, to raise the visibility of the diversity of scholarship that goes on every single year at EMU, including academic and creative, theoretical and applied, critical and experimental, discursive and non-discursive, and third, to validate liberal arts education, to examine the rigor, the relevance, the impact, and interdisciplinary richness of research that pulsates from our liberal arts fields in the humanities, fine arts, social sciences, and STEM disciplines. In a larger sense, the ACE Festival is a powerful way to make manifest our mission at EMU. EMU prepares students to serve and lead in a global context. Our community of learners integrates Christian faith, academic rigor, artistic creation, and reflective practice informed by the liberal arts, interdisciplinary engagement, and cross-cultural encounter. I want to say a special thank you to the ACE team. Hats off uh, to all of you, uh, particularly to Beth Good and Diane Farrar. They have been the team's uh, great facilitators this year. So thank you both, Beth and Diane, and the rest of the Intellectual Life Committee for your dedication to showcasing EMU academic excellence. To close, I would just simply remind you of the words of two legendary scholars who I so admire, one in the sciences and one in the arts and social sciences, both maintained that their scholarly legacy was the result of one very powerful thing, curiosity, unrelenting curiosity. One said, I'm neither clever nor specially gifted. I am only very, very curious. That scholar, 
was Albert Einstein. The other said, research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose. That scholar was Zora Neale Hurston, the American novelist and anthropologist who poked and pried about issues of race and culture her entire professional life. Enjoy the ACE Festival, everyone, and stay curious. Thank you, Susan. And let me add my welcome to each of you here and online to the launch of our sixth annual ACE Festival. The ACE Festival is one of the highlights of our academic year at EMU, and it's an event I look forward to with high anticipation every year. As Susan mentioned, it's an opportunity to showcase and celebrate the best of what we do as a community of learning. The ACE Festival was born of a longtime dream and much brainstorming among faculty members and academic leaders. The first formal proposal for a day-long academic conference and festival began circulating in 2015. The, proposal, the, the proposal's drafters highlighted several key goals for the ACE Festival, among them recognizing excellent scholarship and creativity, consolidating a variety of spring academic events into a day-long conference to encourage greater attendance and vis visibility, and perhaps most importantly, providing an opportunity for students to hone their professional skills and to experience a well-organized academic conference without the time and expense of traveling to regional or national conferences. Because it involved revising the spring, cal spring semester calendar to accommodate canceling classes for a day, the proposal needed to be vetted across a number of offices and decision-making bodies. Like many significant new births in academia, the gestation period was long and arduous. But the first ACE Festival finally happened in the spring of 2018, just in time for our EMU Centennial Celebration Year. It was a fitting launch to EMU's second century. Despite the complications caused by a global pandemic, the ACE Festival has found a way to happen every year since then. It has been a thrill to see the growth of the festival in both the quantity and the quality of scholarship and creativity on display. We've enjoyed a remarkable series of outstanding keynote speakers to open each festival, and tonight's speaker, Luisa A. Igloria, Virginia's 20th Poet Laureate, continues that tradition. You will hear a more detailed introduction of tonight's speaker in just a few minutes. Scholarly and artistic activity can sometimes feel like a lonely pursuit, but it's important to remember that no scholar or artist truly works alone. The presentations you will hear and see this evening and tomorrow are all products of relationships and conversations relationships between students and faculty mentors, support from staff who provide resources and infrastructure, conversations with colleagues, and conversations with the generations of scholars and artists who have gone before us and whose works we build upon, argue with, revise, and advance. Even the most groundbreaking and creative individual work 
is a collective production. It truly takes a village. An important part of the communal ecosystem that produces academic and creative excellence is the network of those who provide the material and financial resources to support the scholars and artists in their work. And that is no less true for the ACE Festival. I want to especially acknowledge and thank three community partners who have provided significant financial support for this year's ACE Festival. Blau Brothers Incorporated, Mechanical Contractors, Omar's Hair Salon and Barbershop, and the law firm of Botkin Rose. Thank you so much for your support. And finally, one more announcement before we hear from our guest speaker. Immediately following tonight's presentation, there will be a book signing in the Brunk Moss Lounge of the Campus Center where you'll have an opportunity to purchase one or more of Dr. Gloria's books and to have her personally sign them for you. Now please welcome to the podium EMU student Cindy Boyer, who will introduce our speaker. Good evening, my name is Cindy Boyer. I am a founder and president of the Asian Club on Campus, APISA. I'm here to introduce our keynote speaker for EMU's 2023 Academic and Creative Excellence Festival, Dr. Luisa A. Igloria. Luisa is an award-winning Filipino-American poet, editor, and professor of creative writing at Old Dominion University at Norfolk, Virginia. She has published over 12 books of poetry and received numerous awards for her work, including the Ernest Sandin Prize for her book, Ode to the Heart Smaller Than a Pencil Eraser. Most recently, Luisa was selected by Black Lawrence Press as the winner of their Immigrant Writing Series Prize. Luisa's poetry is characterized by its lyrical flow and attention to detail, as well as its exploration of themes such as identity, memory, and the natural world. Her work has been praised for its ability to bridge the personal and the political. She creates a space for readers to engage with complex social issues through the lens of individual experience. In, her, in addition to her work as a poet, Luisa is also the editor of the online literary magazine Moria and has served as the inaugural poet laureate of the city of Norfolk, Virginia. Through her writing, teaching, and community engagement, Luisa has been an influential voice in the world of contemporary poetry. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Luisa A. Igloria to the stage. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy, for that lovely and generous introduction. Uh, thank you to President Huxman for your hospitality and provostness. Thank you to Beth Good and Diane Farrar. And I also want to thank Kirsten Beachy for just setting things into motion, which leads to my being here in your uh, company tonight. Congratulations on the sixth ACE Festival. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I love what you've all said about the um, combination of scholarship and creativity because one cannot be without the other. So what I had planned to do uh, was to, do, uh, to read a keynote because when Kristen first introduced the idea of speaking here at your festival, um, she talked about uh, the topic of how poetry 
and uh, its social relevance is something that we need more than ever in the, these times. So I do have a talk, but I do want to include my own poetry as well. And you may have received a handout of a couple of poems, which I will be referencing in the talk portion. But I think I'll change gears from my original plan and actually begin with reading some poems from my own work and then going to the talk and then finishing out with some new poems. Um, and thank you so much for your presence here on this beautiful evening. So I want to lead off with some poems from my collection. The Buddha wonders if she is having a midlife crisis from Phoenicia Publishing in Montreal. So first, a disclaimer, I am not Buddhist, and in fact, I was raised Catholic. And my intention in this book is not to offer philosophical or theological instruction of any sort. What I've read of Buddhism, though, is that arriving at awareness means, for the most part, understanding how a lot of life is illusion, and how this understanding is the only thing that can free us from suffering. Also, when I used to go to yoga classes, I would hear people say something like, the Buddha in me greets the Buddha in you, by which I think they meant the idea that the seed of transcendence already resides in everyone. But this led me to think, therefore, if the Buddha is already in everyone, then it becomes possible for me to imagine the Buddha as different kinds of personae. A woman going through menopause, perhaps. A person wanting to see a therapist. A person confronted by a wall of ice cream flavors at the store who can't decide what will appease his appetite. So one of the things I think I'm trying to do with these poems is to look a little bit at the scale of things or at how things look when set against another context or condition. For instance, when we consider the relationship of interior to exterior space, or how small things can also have momentous significance. And I think we are all trying to do that in our own way, in our own work, whatever our field. So let me start with, the Buddha goes on the internet. The Buddha goes on the internet to look for a licensed counselor and therapist and finds a practice in the street next to the drugstore where he fills his prescriptions. From among the photos on the website, he decides on the one who looks the kindest, a woman with chestnut hair and an old-fashioned first name. She's not really smiling in the photograph, but her eyes are. He picks up the phone and makes an appointment for Tuesday after next. What? You don't think this is a plausible story? You think the Buddha has no need to work out issues or even that he has any issues? This is partly the problem. All the press he's ever gotten has him just about perfected. Every brass likeness and stone statue from museum gallery to the home improvement section of Lowe's or Home Depot depicts him in nothing but an attitude of pure serenity even if next to him there is an entire box of manic-looking garden gnomes. Thumb lightly touching, index finger in the Jian Mudra, eyes to perfect almonds resting on the calm lake of his face. Who would think 
he has any need to unburden himself and his domestic woes to another. It's not easy to think of the ideal as less than ideal, of the one who serves as poster child having the same capacity for hurt and need that we all do. So then, whatever you believe, be gentle with the ones who've listened through the years and asked how they could take away some of your suffering. The ones who sat you down and showed you how to breathe in, then exhale slowly, one nostril at a time. The ones who patiently collected your tears in bottles smaller than your little finger and showed you how they could turn into something else if you laid them lovingly on the sill and gave them a chance to dry. Thank you. So here's that ice cream poem I was talking to you about. The Buddha considers with all seriousness the variety of decisions that revolve around desire, Nutella chocolate chip with sea salt, pistachio lemon cream, or cinnamon amaretto swirl. Where is human nature so weak as in the ice cream section of a 24-hour grocery store? And really, this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Only one layer of this rainbow-shingled world, shiny with neon and digital contraptions sprinkled with add-ons. He is tempted to pack up his new digs and tell his young family they're moving to the country, to an island in Micronesia, somewhere they can hang laundry to dry on the line, collect rainwater in barrels, plant their own tomatoes, squash, and bitter melons, send the kids to school and watch them walk down the dirt path in flip-flops without worrying about their safety. But he's promised his wife he'll try to find a way to live in the humid armpit of this city, practice what he's always talking about, simplify, let go, right where it is. And right where it is, is right here, right now, even in this small, frozen section of the universe where desire after desire jostles for attention, blackberry cobbler, peaches and cream, orange creamsicle, black walnut crunch, each a hymn to the impossibility of satisfaction, reverie that purchase promises, but might not in the end provide. So um, I'll read just a few poems from uh, my book, Juan Luna's Revolver, which I believe is one of the titles which is gonna be available tonight. And in this book, I looked at stories of Filipino writers and artists who had gone to Europe toward the tail end of the Spanish colonial period in the Philippines. In their time, they were also interrogating the very same questions that any immigrant or diasporic writer has to contend with, even in the present. Identity and belonging, visibility, audience, community. Uh, the poem excerpts I will read are from a suite of sonnets called 
postcards from the White City, and their overall subject is the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, Missouri, to which over a 1,000 indigenous Filipinos were taken to serve as live exhibits in the fair, kind of like a human zoo. So cue the music from me, me in St. Louis, Louis. I'm a very good singer. Anyway, postcards from the White City. I'll just read two. World's Fair, St. Louis, Missouri, 1904. Here, where we were almost nothing, on the banks of the Arrowhead River, they mapped the unruly forest, laid down promenades and columns. Lights flickered from dusk to dawn, their arctic glow eating at the cone of darkness. The darkness was to become extinct, was to perish. The previous year, the first flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The first time a girl tiptoed round-mouthed and pulled a cord that tripped a light switch on. In Lancaster, Kentucky, she watched as her hands washed themselves in light, blue like gentian violet, their shadows swimming like a pair of fish. World's Fair, St. Louis, Missouri, 1904. In Paris, Vienna, New York, street lamps dispute nocturnal authority. Along avenues and bridges since the late 1800s, orange flares crown the ends of coiled filaments, tiny as cloves, riven into the base of a socket. We learn by degrees about this light. The eye understands how butter limps the edge of a knife to make it seem less dangerous. Blinking, I stepped out of train doors. Across the platform, a boy tended a kettle. The wind smelled of damp wood, hot chestnuts. It is told that two of our number lay down in a boxcar and died as simply as two pairs might tip over in their tissue-lined carton. Inevitable, they said, frost in April, the ground still salted over with snow. So as the poem I just read tells us, two of the indigenous Filipinos from the northern Cordillera region, uh, sometimes or often actually, they're called Igorots, they died in transit to the fair, not being used to the extremes in, in climate. And uh, of the ones that perished in a similar manner, I think their um, bodies were shipped off to a museum for further scientific study and exploration. So now I want to segue to the main part of my uh, presentation tonight. And I've been asked to think of what poetry offers us more than feeling. So what is it about poetry? And what can we find from it, especially in the troubled times that we have today? So. I said, well, imagine how if we imbibed a poem a day, just like we did our daily vitamins. 
Imagine walking the aisles of a poetry apothecary with a shopping basket in hand, comparing labels, manufacture date, strength, efficacy, and scan for hidden sugars, additives, or carbs. Maybe this is something we feel we already do when we visit websites like poets.org or Poetry Foundation or Verse Daily, or when we open our email and find that there is a new poem from our daily poem subscription. So even before the pandemic made Instacart and ship ubiquitous, poetry was already delivering the goods. It likely began doing that with the help of perhaps one of the oldest forms of virality, the oral tradition. So much so that we can read epic poems and sapphic verses today. Prayers, chants, lyrics, and other texts from other times, though now it might be lit by the paper-white glow of a screen or a phone. Ezra Pound famously said, literature is news that stays news. Another imagist poet, William Carlos Williams, said, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. What both these poets refer to is the idea of both freshness and relevance, things that we usually associate with journalism. And mostly, though, I prefer to think of what poetry brings us, not necessarily in terms of news. What I've realized, especially since that one fateful afternoon of my high school freshman year, when I failed a quiz on metaphor, believe it or not, <laughs> is that the language of poetry, the language of literature, is not primarily transactional or even useful. Poetry does not do sums or calculations or place prescription orders. It does not pay your mortgage or student loans. It doesn't predict weather, the trends in the stock market, or the coming elections. British poet Alice Oswald, in one of her Oxford lectures last year, described the tradition of poetry as attempts to communicate with something outside human structure. Experiences that are so unsayable that they fall outside the capacity of ordinary language to contain, but that somehow the language of poetry can approach. In their own time, the Romantic poets famously defined poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings that takes its origin from the emotion recollected in tranquility. The ensuing catharsis of that overload of emotion has a clearing effect. Among the romantics, the expression of powerful feelings, whether one is only contemplating them or is in the throes of abandonment, betrayal, grief, death, is rendered in language that might typically be described as sublime, lifted up in thought, inspiring, and elevated in style. But the oppressiveness of feelings runs a whole range. It runs the range of pity and fear, anger, shame, guilt, and grief. Catharsis means that these might be flushed and cleansed and transformed through our vicarious experience of them in poetry. Heart and throat, we might come to the end of a story or a poem and emerge from the theater feeling that the rendered intensity of emotional experience has given the world and us some new clarity or insight. I tend to be wary of claims made for the therapeutic value of poetry. 
and before that of the insistence that poetry's power stems from its connection only to real life, to the, it's what really happened. And my students know my typical response to that kind of declaration. I say, so what? What do we gain or lose just because an experience has transpired? Does an event by itself constitute embodiment as poetry or art? We've all been acutely conscious of transience, of experiences fleeting. Perhaps that's why there were cave paintings or graffiti. Japanese artists talk about the floating world. So the very existence of language points to our eternal quandary with the nature of time and the perishability of material life. Writer Jenny Bully asks, can you give to someone else what has been? That's the task of the poet. So it seems that giving to someone else what has been has to do with a generosity that exceeds any moment full of feeling, no matter how lavish the catharsis you might get from it. Besides feeling, there is also work. The ways in which we might consider and reconsider our use of language, technique, practice, revision, translation. Such work might help us nudge the poem toward the hope of what comes beyond the moment of its outburst, articulation, or perception. The poem that gives to us what has been must also ask, what remains of our attention and witnessing? How and what will our conversations and creations change after the poem? Such questions have so much relevance in the last few years, along with the rededicated interest in the public role of poetry and its relationship to social change. We're still living through a global pandemic. The grief, isolation, the trauma it's forced us to endure. We have seen fires and snowstorms in the West, floods in the South, drought, other extreme weather effects due to global warming, economic uncertainty, loss of lives, livelihood and property, the mass exodus of refugees trying to make their way to safety, the continuing threat of another world war. Our individual and constitutional freedoms in danger every day of being threatened by those with privilege and power. Um, a little anecdote, in November 2020, for a Thanksgiving feature, the New York Times reached out to poets laureate across the nation to ask them to contribute a few lines or even a poem to answer this question. What are people in your state grateful for? Back then, I'd read an article in the Richmond Times describing, and I quote, the Robert E. Lee Monument in its current form then as the most influential work of American protest art since World War II. The 103-year-old monument honoring the Confederate general had been covered in graffiti since early June 2020, when protests and social unrest gripped Richmond and the nation following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. In early September of that same year, the state of Virginia took the statue off its pedestal. While I could not then, nor now, claim any ability to speak for what communities in the Commonwealth might be grateful for, I did offer a few lines which I hoped at least captured some of the uh, moments when it seemed that history was physically being remade and rewritten 
in front of our own eyes. So one of the things in your handout is this little poem that came out in the New York Times. Poem with statues falling. It was the summer we took heads, toppled statues of despots and slaveholders off their gleaming plinths. Elsewhere, tipped them into the oily depths of rivers. It was the summer we gave thanks for the thousand, thousand bodies marching in the hearts of grieving, inflamed cities. How they brought brave songs and chants, paint and chalk, words and light to project the hopes which we must bind together so we become our own living, breathing monuments. So the day after that Thanksgiving feature came out, I received two emails. One of them was basically hate email. <laughs> One of them was from a woman who described herself as a proud daughter of the South, coming from a lineage that, while they owned slaves, took care to educate them. She berated me for not portraying a picture more inclusive of her lineage, and then in the same breath attributed such short-sightedness to my otherness. You're not really from here. The other email was much briefer, expressing thanks for voicing the sentiments of the poem. It was from the president of a lecture series on civic engagement and civility, which I think uh, ran in Chicago and New York. Salvadoran poet Claribel Alegria was among the first to use the phrase a poetry of witness. American poet Carolyn Forche, who has translated Alegria, describes this kind of poetry as one written in the aftermath of extremity, one that looks at and describes violence and atrocity in the world, but in describing it, searches for traces of evidence of our humanity. On the role of poetry in active witness, former U.S. Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, but it feels wrong to say nothing, especially during this time when we're seeing an increase in acts of open racism and authoritarianism. Joy Harjo, our first Native American Poet Laureate, always speaks of how words are powerful and can be used in our efforts to make change happen. She attributes her knowledge of language and poetry to her first teachers, librarians and the ancestors, who she describes as the original poets of indigenous tribal nations. Her work and the work of poets like Claudia Rankine, Lely Long Soldier, Maider Van, and Craig Santos Perez, among others, addresses the historical losses that cleave us and distance us from the land, from the earth, from each other. I had barely hit my teens when the late Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law. People lived through days and nights of curfew, the constant threat of surveillance, the disappearance of loved ones. When we heard news of a salvaged body, we knew that this was someone who was not saved or rescued, but rather someone who had been taken away and killed, likely by the military. The body dumped somewhere in an alley or a canal. Most re more recently, the world heard of the more than 25,000 EJKs, or 
extrajudicial killings in the Philippines under the previous Duterte regime, with many of the victims women, young people, even children below five. The words used to describe these deaths are not poetry. Rather, they try to sanitize and anesthetize to make palatable those realities which should have made us cringe, flinch, feel. In his powerful book, Death Republic, poet Ilya Kaminsky describes a fictional town under siege where people enact resistance through deliberate silence and deafness. They also resist through art. One of the characters runs a puppet theater which delivers messages of insurgency. Some people write or make art. Some of us minister to the sick or work on the front lines. Some of us teach. Some organize marches and other public actions. There are different ways to witness. We try to find ways to do and say what is right. Caroline Forche highlights how the awareness of ourselves and others, as well as of the world, first comes to be in the space of interiority. It's almost as if she describes poetry and art as superior to other kinds of epistemology. They are a means of retrieving human knowledge irretrievable by other means. Composing poems, writing stories, songs, is a meditative spiritual act of resistance which requires a capacity to sustain contemplation, to be attentive to all that is about us, and to hold within ourselves an awareness that we are here in our living moment between two unknown realms before our births and after our deaths. One of the first things to which poetry was used was as elegy. Traditional elegy in ancient Greek metrical form was written in response to the death or passing of someone and contained three stages of loss, lament, praise, remembrance. And after that, finally, one might hope for consolation and solace. As lament, the poem expresses grief and sorrow. As eulogy, the poem praises and remembers the one that is gone. And finally, as lyric articulation, the poem opens a space in which to be consoled. But is consolation guaranteed? Do we ever get over the effects of historical trauma, dispossession, racial, and other forms of violence? Do we ever get over the loss of, or death of a friend, partner, parent, brother, sister, son, daughter? To hold within ourselves that awareness that we are here becomes a starting point. From there, it might be possible to approach the condition of empathy, whose Greek roots reside in empatheia, to feel alongside with, to suffer any emotion, calamity, or sorrow with. It is a complex work of imagination which requires projecting our condition or aligning it with another's. And maybe from the ground of there, telling our stories, it might be possible to imagine the unimaginable. I am moving to the other poem in my handout, and uh, it is a poem that describes some of the realities that we face today in this country, um, the gun violence, and in this case, how gun violence in this country has become the leading cause of death for American children. And the poet is Matthew Olsman, and his poem is titled Letter, beginning with two lines from Sheslaw Miwash. And here are the beginning lines. 
letter beginning with two lines from Jaslaw Miwash. You whom I could not save, listen to me. Can we agree Kevlar backpacks should not be needed for children walking to school? Those same children also shouldn't require a suit of armor when standing on their front lawns or snipers to watch their backs as they eat at McDonald's. They shouldn't have to stop to consider the speed of a bullet or how it might reshape their bodies. It's not lost on us, therefore, that neither Olsman or Miwash harbor any romantic illusions about their ability to stop this and other forms of violence. But the elegy for you whom I could not save turns from lament into insistence. He says, listen to me. In empathizing with the victims of violence, we move from the individual to the collective experience. Did I say I had one student who opened the door and died? That's wrong. There were many. The classroom of grief had far more seats than the classroom for math, though every student in the classroom for math could count the names of the dead. The poem ends with a warning which is also a reminder that in a world where we are offered some choice, there should be accountability. Language could be more than empty rhetoric. The three stanzas at the end ask, what should we do? And that click you hear? That's just our voices, the deadbolt of discourse sliding into place. I think, or hope, we're all in our own way trying to become more conscious, trying to live life and not be lived by it, trying to feel as though life isn't just one accident after another, but something we might imbue with more intention and love. In 2013, after Category 5 Typhoon Haiyan or Super Typhoon Yolanda battered Tacloban City in the Philippines, over 6,000 people were killed with peak winds between 230 and 315 kilometers per hour, it was the most powerful tropical cyclone worldwide. Vela magazine invited writers who knew the Philippines or know the Philippines as home, heritage, adventure, or holiday to compile a collective response in, hom in homage to this place and its people, this elegy for all that has been lost. Editor Molly Beer wrote, perhaps it's feeble to hope to fend off apathy and forgetfulness, to hope to help with words. Perhaps the gulf is too great, but writing that wormhole from one person's world to another's heeds its highest calling when it works to ignite empathy for what lies beyond our own experience. And when I heard that, it made me think of a very famous poem by E.E. E. Cummings, somewhere I have never traveled, beyond any existence. And he writes about the rain in that poem, too. In fact, in it, the poet declares that his lover's hands are smaller and more delicate than rain. He probably doesn't know Super Typhoon Haiyan and that kind of rain. So I'm reading a short prose poem in the handout, Elegy with Lines from E.E. E. Cummings. Nobody, not even the rain, has such small hands, but I do not agree. Time, perhaps, has the illusion of small hands. 
Time is made of wings we cannot see or feel, even if they brush against our faces in the dark. In the daytime, they take the shape of pauses, those moments we think we have forgotten something important and we retrace our steps. Somewhere in the mind, the sound of a shutter clicking open and close. Warnings and sirens and then the wind rising, insistent, forcing open all closed doors, all shelters. The pictures show how, before it made landfall, the storm was a magnitude of elegiac proportions. Its one eye did not blink. So bent was it on bearing down with the unbearable weight of its sadness. No, this rain did not have small hands. But the child did, the one whose frail body spun like a compass needle wrenched free of its battered case. Let me go, and you live, she said to her mother, before the current took her. None of this is metaphor. Ten thousand lives did not shut very beautifully, suddenly, or close like roses. So I feel like the language of poetry is a very deep form of technology. Somehow it can touch those places in us and in the world that we might have believed were beyond the capacity of ordinary speech to contain or express. In the presence or aftermath of exigency, trauma, or other upheaval, I've heard people say things like, I can't even. You hear that, right? I can't even. By which they mean regular language seems unable to bear the weight of experience of whatever it is that is too much. For instance, there might be times when hearing a thread of music or coming across a passage or a picture in a newspaper or a book or magazine, you might be sitting in an airport waiting for a plane or in a hospital waiting room, but you are swiftly and resonantly moved, sometimes to tears, sometimes to laughter or indignation, often even before thought registers the experience. So these are some of the places in which we can feel most deeply and vulnerably human, where we might see each other, ourselves and each other, a little more clearly in all the ways that make us most singularly ourselves. That is not in some abstract or universal space of experience, but one in which we are brought back into the presence of ourselves and others, flawed and imperfect, living and doubting, hurting and hoping, inside bodies inhabiting time and space. And that is the end of the formal part of my talk. And I will close with just a few poems because I know there might be uh, some questions that people would like to ask or want to have a conversation. So, um, I'd like to read a poem that is based on a story from mythology. It is from my daily writing practice. I've been writing at least a poem a day for about 12 years and four or five months now. Uh, and I love that time of day when I can get to my writing practice. And so this is one of the poems that has emerged from there. It's called Ode to the Hand Wrapped Around the Achilles Heel. 
and the reference is the story of the Greek hero Achilles. During the Trojan War, uh, Achilles fought and killed the Trojan prince Hector, and all this set off a retaliatory cycle of violence. We tend to focus on the big moments of heroism and struggle in narratives like that, but there are also those other moments of incredible internal tension and drama that are more subdued or that are not given much screen time. And maybe because I have children, I'm riveted by the figure of Achilles' mother and how she held him by the heel and dipped him into the river Styx when he was a baby because she wanted to protect him from harm. So that's where that poem begins. There is um, an epigraph from James Redfield's Nature and Culture in the Iliad, and I quote, Martyr to loyalties, a witness to the things of this world, ready to die for the precious imperfections of ordinary life. Ode to the hand wrapped around the Achilles' heel. Good husband material, her aunt's assessment, watching her fiancé help his parents navigate the narrow staircase from the gallery where they've gone to an art opening. He goes out in the rain to get the car which he parked at the end farthest from both entrance and exit, lessening the off chance a lorry or fire truck or other large vehicle might lose its brakes, swerve from the road and ram into theirs. Over the years, she's come to learn how certain habits and the ways he likes to do things are driven by a combination of fear, planning, and precision. Even if, or perhaps because, most things are outside the realm of total human jurisdiction. In the Iliad, their son in her arms, Andromache pleads with Hector not to go back to fight in a war that he opposes. But he is the kind of man for whom duty to country is synonymous with obligation to family. He will do what he can to prevent their being taken as spoils of war or slaves. Homer writes, a thousand campfires gleamed upon the plain. When it is his time to go, he only wants to go with honor. Because victors in any kind of war don't always have compassion, Achilles gloats, not only calling on dogs and vultures to desecrate the corpse of his enemy, but also slitting his heel tendons, passing leather thongs through them before dragging Hector's body in the dust. This story is meant to illustrate weakness in any figure, victor or victim. Thus, every human fear of the end is a wish to protect, to render secure, if not invincible, whoever is in their care. Here is the ankle held fast in a mother's hand, the one blind spot her love kept dry from the waters of the underworld. Here is the rain that falls on all their heads with not a shield in sight. And always, someone who volunteers to go first or last. I think I will just read one more poem 
Um, I love words. I was saying to uh, Dr. Seidel's class this afternoon, I love looking up etymology, and I love this word called tempering, which is a word that comes from metal working, right? You beat the metal and you thin it out. Hymn of tempering. I love the homely egg even after it's broken. My flawed desiderata, my failed cartography. I distrust those who warn against dreams. Those who say dreamers are swindlers, peddlers of moldy bean curd, fake pashmina. Look around, there are many far more evil than the dreams they warn us not to harbor. They wear identical dark suits and cannot look straight at the camera, even while professing apology or regret. Whereas I love the irregular weave of a hand-loomed blanket, how and where it holds itself most accountable to light, the thin spots, the possibility of future breaking. Every use thus beautifies the tally of a thing's imperfections, which is not the same as saying it is flawed. I admire what's entered fire, yet stays supple, acutely reflective. A leather-faced slapper coaxes gold to tendrils. We'll wear what the blows will never finish. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if anyone has any questions, uh, I will try my best. We do have mics, so if you have a question, just raise your hand and someone will bring a mic to you. Nice one back there. It's really bright I'm here. I'm curious to know what your writing process is like. Like, how do you discover like what you want to write about, and then how do you go through and decide? Okay, I didn't catch the last part, but I did hear you say, "How do I describe my writing process?" And then, what's the last part of that? Okay, uh, yeah, so writing is uh, really uh, like this supple and fluid uh, thing. I never go to my desk every day. I do write every day. I never say, I'm going to write about X thing today because those things never really come out well, uh, too, too premeditated. So um, as I said, poetry is like my favorite place to process what the world has given me to think about to feel, to kind of work through in, in other personal and other dimensions or ways. So I might start with an image, or I might start with a phrase of something I found interesting. Uh, I might start with a fact that I learned from my reading. I might start with just the sound of a line. Sometimes a line just pops into my head and it just kind of sings and sits there. I'm like, what is this thing doing in my head? And so I sit down and try to puzzle it out. I try to figure out where it wants to go. And so I try to be open. So writing, I think, not just poetry, but writing anything is a process also of listening, paying attention to what you think is trying to be said. 
So a lot of the time, I feel like when we feel there is an obstruction, it also can feel like we get in the way of our best intentions sometimes, and that can be for any of a number of reasons. So I know sometimes people get stuck, but I would say don't despair. Maybe move away from it for a little bit. Maybe do something else, but come back. Come back and listen deeply. What are you trying to say? What do you really want to say? And then you will find the words. You will find the images. Things will uh, suggest themselves to you, will remind you about things. Memory is great for that. So how do I know uh, uh, what form um, it should take? Again, it's this process of listening. It, maybe it sounds a little mystical or magical, but I can't, I can't describe it in any other way than that. I, I try to listen with the poem to what the poem is also telling me. And then it'll tell me where to go. When I get a few lines, a few stanzas, I look at it and read it and think, hmm, where is this going? And then I will reach out and see what comes next, if that makes sense. But thank you for your question. It's a very deep question. Any other question? Um, have you ever experienced a creative block? And if yes, how did you overcome that? Yeah, I did, which is why I started this daily writing practice. And uh, I know it can feel very frustrating because I know we all wear so many hats. We are always doing so many things. Uh, we are moms, we are parents, we are partners, we are daughters, we are sons, we are students, we are teachers, so many obligations. And like any other writer or artist, I, I crave time to uh, create my work. I, I crave what I like to call dreaming time, the time in which you can just listen to your imagination and kind of see what you produce out of that. So uh, I knew I didn't have... Um, enough time in the day. I was always complaining about it. And so the people who live with me know how unhappy I can get, how grumpy I can get when I don't get to my writing. So they're like, she's so scary. Uh, so I, I tried to carve out that time. So I, finally, I just said 12 years and six months ago, you know what, I'm just going to take what I can, whether it's a half hour or 40 minutes, wherever in the day I can. I will drop down there and promise myself to meet myself there on the page. And it just grew. I had no intention of keeping it this long. But I've learned so much about myself as a writer, uh, myself and my habits. It's kind of like, you know, biofeedback, right? You learn more about the thing as you do the thing. And it's no longer a matter of, because sometimes people will, you know, people are haters, right? <laughs> they come up to you and they say things like, what are you trying to prove? And I'm not, I really am not. Uh, and I'm just trying to figure out, you know, this thing that I love to do so much that I'm teaching it, I'm writing it, I'm reading it, and just trying to absorb as much uh, knowledge about it as I can, which in the hope, you know, in the hope of feeding that to my writing as well. So uh, I'm not trying to sound pretentious or uh, uncompassionate when I say there's part of me that does not believe in writer's block anymore. 
Uh, definitely not my intention to do that. But what I want to encourage you to do is maybe change the way we think about these things. The idea of writer's block as somehow something debilitating to us as writers, when I feel like there's so much generosity inside of us, not just as human beings, but as artists, as writers. And you know, my students say, am I a writer? And I say, absolutely, you are a writer. You have the stories you need to tell inside you. Just give yourself permission. And you know, allow yourself to open up and learn as much as you can. And then you know, maybe stop thinking about it as a block. Maybe think of it as just a, a moment on the page, a moment in your day. And you can come back, you can leave it, you can come back, and you can keep doing that. But there, you know, make your writing your friend. Don't make it your enemy. I ask my students all the time, why are you doing this? What is it that brought you here? What is it that you love so much about this thing? Anything, whatever you're studying, with music or whatever. What is it that you love so much that you want to do this thing forever and forever, maybe? And don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. That's where it comes from, that love for what you do. Sounds cheesy, but it's true. There's no other way to say it. Question? Thank you. I appreciate what you were saying about um, like this idea that we can maybe let go of like the realism. Like People like to say uh, like poetry is truth, and it's like this really um, maybe speaking to the realism in our world, but you kind of let go of that and, and, and maybe let it be something more creative and not so tied down to our reality. And I guess, <clears throat> like a lot of us at the school are STEM students, or maybe we don't do poetry or creative arts as our um, majors, and so mm -hmm. what ways can we maybe implement some of those practices and maybe let go of like um, the real being so tied down to the physical world and the and the realities of uh, and and maybe engaged with more of that uh, mm -hmm. creative side, even in a, a science or mm -hmm. some kind of hard mm -hmm. physical thing. Uh, I hope I'm understanding your question right, but I think um, not exactly to let go of the world or to let go of the realities that team around us, sometimes it's overload even, but maybe to just develop uh, a kind of intentional attention to things, to notice, oh, this is such a beautiful you know, color, or it can be really simple. So in science, I know as well as in art, uh, details are so important. The more concrete, the more specific the details are, I think the closer you come to an understanding, not only of the form of the thing, but maybe you can come close to some kind of essence of the thing. And uh, maybe just you know not, not put too many expectations in that encounter, but kind of just you know be there because you would like to joyfully engage with that. And so even in the sciences, there's so much to explore, to describe uh, the interactions of things, uh, the dynamism of relationships in the natural world and how they affect each other. Uh, one of the things I've been writing about of late is um, climate change and you know all these things that we are seeing playing out in the environment. So I would just say uh, keep feeding that attention. Um, there is no one right or wrong way to do this. 
And just know that there are multiple ways of learning about a subject. So you may be steeped in science or social science, but there's also like a human story behind everything. And maybe you can just go there and not forget about that while doing the other things that are also important. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Right. And, you know, just try to embrace uh, whatever life throws at you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much Thank for you. your words, for your work. Um, I had read some of your poems in preparation for your visit, and I was trying to, in my mind, just trying to categorize it, probably because I come from more of the science background, but when you said the words, witness through poetry. I thought, that's it. That's what I'm getting from the poetry that, that right. you, have, right. you have written. So yeah. we th thank, thank you. you so much for thank being here. Thank you so here. much for inviting me. So um, we're going to have a reception over in the, the lounge area. So you're welcome to come over. There will be some books for sale, um, and you'll be signing some yeah, books. Yeah, and and so we can continue the conversation. Continue there. the conversation. So thank you very thank much, you so and much. welcome. Thank you.